Hi guys and welcome back to the Back to Go podcast. It's episode 21. We are back. It's the new year. My name is Cameron Smith and I'll be your host today. And joining me, as he always is, is my trusty co-host, Jamie Monks. Jamie, how was your new year, mate? Uh, yeah, okay. There was a little bit run down on, on New Year's Day. Didn't have the uh, the New Year's that I perhaps wanted to. Um <laughs> But yeah, no, I can't complain too much. There's been a lot of football to suck into and, you know, it's not stopping anytime soon. Yeah, like you say, obviously, for, obviously with the World Cup break, it means that leagues are having to fit games in um, pretty rapidly in this festive period. And yeah, it's nice to see, obviously, had Christmas, New Year's and just getting stuck back into football, um, which is very, very nice. Um and why don't we get started, mate, rather than take up too much time waffling at the start. I think we might might as well get started with the Premier League. Obviously, game's coming thick and th- fast, like we mentioned. Um, and obviously, as we're recording this, the next game week has already started. Um, we mentioned in the last podcast, like, lining up the different leagues and when to record and release these podcast episodes has been a little tricky. Um, so Liverpool game has happened of the next match day, but we'll... We'll stick with the sort of the New Year's games um, and we'll start with Tottenham Hotspur um, and Antonio Conte. Um, and just a little question I've got for you is, is time running out for Conte at Spurs? Obviously, a 2-0 loss to Aston Villa. They're now in fifth place, obviously, still ahead of the likes of Liverpool and Chelsea. Um, but they've conceded the first goal in their last seven Premier League games and their early season form, which was lauded as their best start ever in the Premier League. That's The, the atmosphere has certainly changed around Tottenham in recent weeks, hasn't it? Yeah, um, I, I would say time is definitely running out for Conte. I think a lot of people have been staying this for the last month or so. Even even with the winter break, people like I saw plenty of Spurs fans, you know, saying I'm not looking forward to you know tucking into Spurs ball again and Conte ball because it's at, at the moment pretty turgid. Um, but even with that amazing start that they had, everyone was still saying the performance the performances aren't there, but they're just grinding out wins. And when they fail to grind out those wins, it's going to get pretty ugly for Spurs. And I, th- I think we're seeing that now. Um, the performance uh, two days ago against Villa was just absolutely horrible. Um, just, just no sort of inventive spark throughout the whole team, which in, in Conte's sides uh, in the past, you know, with Inter and Chelsea, we, we've seen they've been able to just... With Conte's sort of uh, systems and his uh, his his patterns of play, eventually the system will get something going. Um, in, in possession, definitely, and building out the back. Uh, but we just didn't see that against Villa at all. It was you know a horrid watch to say the least. Yeah, obviously, Emery Buendia and, and Douglas Luiz scored the goals for Villa, and it just you went into this game expecting Spurs to lose at least or at least to go behind because it's happened so regularly like I said considering the first goal on seven Premier League games in a row like that is like unprecedented for like a big team like Tottenham like they're still fifth like they're still in with a chance of reaching the Champions League but to have such a poor record starting games like it it does just seem like it takes them going a goal down for them to wake up or often like going two goals down we've seen it against Bournemouth for that comeback seen it against Brentford with the comeback like going two two goals down seems to spark something in Spurs obviously didn't happen in this game going two goals down but it's just a matter of the goals they considered as well like um the Emery Buendia goal like Larice, what's he really doing not really sure and then Douglas Louise one like Eve Basuma like just doesn't track the run like it is a very clever run from Louise and it is a really nice free ball into him from John McGinn but like Bissouma is just not tracking it and it's just it's frustrating because Bissouma at Brighton was one of the best midfielders in the Premier League and since come to Spurs he's been criticised a lot and sort of rightfully so because he just hasn't fit in like Conte has slammed him for his sort of tactical side of the game saying it wasn't up to scratch and he needed to work on that um, obviously he's been forced to play with Benton Kerr out and it's just it's not quite looked the same like Hoiberg hasn't looked the same about Benton Kerr next to him and and Spurs just look a completely different side. Like Son has completely lost um, sort of the attacking thrust he had before. Like he just looks like a player who has relied on finishing for so long and just isn't getting the chances to score. And it is just reliant on Kane producing a goal from somewhere for Spurs because they do just lack like everything in their play. Like they don't look convincing going forward and defensively, which is something that Conte has sort of pride himself on before is like that defensive structure and hitting teams on a t- counter-tally. You sort of into how good Lukaku was at that. 
but like they just look so porous defensively and it just I can't really wrap my head around what's gone so wrong for Spurs even though like those performances at the start of the season weren't good they were still able to get the results and it's just been such a dramatic downturn that they have sort of suffered in terms of they're just not getting results not getting performances and it probably is just the case of Conte just running out like we see this with Conte like it gets to a stage where he leaves like he's done enough of the squad like he saw it at Chelsea sort of into like he can't take it any further and I'm not sure I'm not sure what Spurs do because they're going to have to commit one way or another they're either going to have to commit in this January window to giving Conte the players that could maybe save their season and get them into the Champions League, or they're going to have to sack him and look for a new manager. If you were like Daniel Levy, like what would you do? Would you back Conte with some like funding and, and say, like, here are the signings you want, go and get us top four? Or would you say, look, let's just look elsewhere and see if there's a better solution for a manager? Uh, hard to say because, I mean, two months ago, Spurs fans were saying... You know, we, we we should be comfortable for top four here, potentially challenging Arsenal and City. Hmm. Um, but you can just see Daniel Levy just going out and just sacking Conte and bringing in Thomas Tuchel. That that just screams like something that he would do. Um, I'm not sure because. Uh, but one thing you will say is so Conte signings. When you look at Benton Core, Kulusevski, and Romero, they've been great. But uh, it's it's the profile of players that he wants. It, like long term, once Conte goes, which he will eventually go, like uh, the managers after always seem to suffer when when it comes to that because he, he's got such a set sort of profile that he wants them sort of experienced heads. Like Spurs' squad now is like it, even I think I saw it uh, yesterday. Even with uh, Brian Gill in the squad in in the starting eleven, like the average age was like twenty nine. That is a problem. That is Big such time. a problem, yeah. Um, and I just think uh, if the next three games don't go well for Conte, I think he could be gone. Uh, one thing I do want to mention as well is the last few games I've been watching Spurs. Uh, Son, he, he, I don't think he's played well all season, but it, the, the positions he's taken up are really weird now. He, he's like he's receiving the ball with his back to goal almost in that sort of Kane sort of position. Um, when he's usually used to you know, uh, stretching defences and behind. Um, I, I, I've just noticed that in the last couple of games. I've just been confused as to why you'd want Son with his back to go away. He's not really you know, that intricate sort of between the lines and holding up play and, and, and dribbling past, past the man when it, when it comes to having your back to goal. What you, you'd obviously want him stretching teams and behind, which he's you know, done so well for the last five or six years. Uh, but that's one part of you know what's what's been going wrong for Spurs, I think. Yeah, I think it is a good point. Like Son has looked off it, and for a player who was what the top scorer in the Premier League last year, like joint, like was well pretty much close to it. It's like, yeah, it's just pretty insane. Like the drop off that Son's had, um, and I think with Kulusevski out the team, like Spurs have looked like a completely different team. I think he's potentially been their like most influential player this season. Like when he's not in the team, they look a completely different side. Like Kane looks a better player with him in there. Like the the crosses that Kulisevsky puts in from that right hand side. They're like De Bruyne esque. Like we see them operating in very similar zones, obviously different strong foot, but that's a very similar zone. And Kulisevsky is so vital for Spurs. And I think with that with him out, like Brian Hill playing in that position, like I quite like Brian Hill and I think that like he probably has deserved to have a few more chances at Spurs given how poor they've been recently. But like he's just not on Kulisevsky's level, especially in the role that they're playing in the side. And the drop off has been massive. Um, so it, it probably no matter if they keep Conte or they go in a different direction, like they probably are going to need strengthening in January if they want to challenge for top four. Because you've seen like Liverpool go and add Cody Gakpo, Chelsea are close to agreeing to get a deal for Enzo Fernandez. Like they've already signed David Datcher for Fana from Molder. Like teams around them are strengthening. Like you imagine Manchester United go out and get a forward because they missed out on Gakpo. Like Spurs are going to need to do something. I think in January, like because. Otherwise, this season has got the potential to see them sort of drop, keep dropping down the table and finish, you know, seventh or eighth. And that would represent a really poor season for Spurs after having their best start ever. And I think it is a confusing time for them because, like, they've had such a good start to the season and now it's it's gone so wrong so quickly. And, like, they could very well, like, turn their season around with the likes of Bentenko and Kulisevsky coming back into the side uh, when they're fully fit. But, uh, I I'm not sure if I can see like Conte 
resurrecting a change in Spurs. So, yeah, it might be time for them to leave. And, and the point you made about Conte leaving squads um, in, a, in a difficult state for managers to pick up after him is a really good point because like you've seen it with Inter this season, obviously, and Zaghi was there last year. But this year, they're, what, 14 points or something off Napoli in Serie A? Um, the, the profile of players they've got is certainly ageing. I mean, Chelsea have never really recovered from Conte leaving, obviously won the Champions League, but their, their performances in the Premier League have have not been particularly impressive. Um, so yeah, it's a really good point. And Chelsea, Chelsea has spent a lot of money to try and resurrect their squad and are going to spend even more in January um, and in the summer. So yeah, really good point. I think that it's going to come to a decision time where Levy's going to have to say, right, we either, you know, we stick or twist now. Um, and it's going to have to come in the next couple of weeks because... Conte's at danger of sort of just continuing this fall at Spurs unless something changes. Yeah, I, um, I can definitely see um, that North London derby in a few weeks' time sort of de- deciding whether, whether Conte stays or goes. That's a huge game for Spurs in, in terms of, you know, it, it, by that point, you know, Arsenal could be, you know, well on their way to winning the title, potentially. Um, so, yeah, no, a huge game for them in, in a couple of weeks in that North London derby. Yeah, we mentioned Spurs' wingers there, how Kulusevsky's been so important for them and, and Sonners has dropped off. Um, another team who's seen their wingers sort of become a, a problem for them is Manchester City. And we'll get on to City now, obviously, a one or draw with Everton thanks to a, a Demora Grace stunner. Um, we saw him produce something quite similar against Arsenal last season. Um, but yeah, City, like, sort of, were not particularly impressive in this game. One all draw, like, leaves Arsenal seven points clear at the top. You saw Haaland getting absolutely rattled by Ben Godfrey um, throughout the game. And I think the wingers is something that I've seen a lot um, online, like the criticism of like, Mares and Grealish, like the strangeness of Pep not really playing Phil Foden since the World Cup. Um, very strange season. Same with Jao Cancelo, not featured too much. Same with Bernardo Silva. And I think it is interesting that Grealish and Mares have been favoured recently. I think I'll just run through their stats here. Grealish this season in the Premier League has got one goal and two assists. Mares in the Premier League has got one goal <laughs> and one assist. Like you compare that to City's heyday with Sterling and Sarni out wide in sort of 17, 18. And, and the, the drop-off is massive. And it has just become like the Haaland show. It has just changed the system to get Haaland chances. And of course, he scored, what, 21 goals scored in this game again. Like 15 games in the league, 21 goals. Like that is unbelievable. But... But City have lost production out wide um, and it's harmed them because like so another team has come in in Arsenal and has overtaken them so far. And it's going to go right down to the wire, I think, with Arsenal now, with City showing weakness like in this game. And it's strange for them to have, for Pep to have evolved his side so much in terms of bringing in a, a central striker like Haaland. But then the other facets of the team sort of just not provide as much stability like that out wide was a constant source of goals for City over the years. Like it was a massive part of how Guardia's played. And recently it's just not been anywhere near the same. Yeah, I think it's been a problem since Sane left, to be honest, because Sterling since Sane left has always been sort of heavily rotated with the likes of Mahrez, Jesus at times as well. Um, But this always happens with uh, like Pep's City. There'll be spells where... John Stones is, you know, number one on the team sheet every week. And then suddenly he's gone for, you know, three or four months. Um, and th- this happens with the attackers as well. Um, the problem is starting Grealish and Mahrez week in, week out is just uh, not, not ideal, is it? Because you've got such a lack of threat in behind. They're, they're both wingers who want the ball to feet. We, we spoke in depth about, you know, Grealish's, you know, problems at City last week. Um and what that all sort of boils down to is just an over-reliance on Haaland. And I think this is... One weakness, I think, of Haaland is when he has that deep block in front of him, when he's not got the space in behind. If the crosses aren't good into the box, you are just... You completely nullify Haaland's ability entirely, I think. And also, what it also does for the rest of the team is you keep feeding Haaland because you think, oh, if we just keep giving the ball Haaland, he will get us a goal eventually, he will get us over the line. And it takes the like the goal scoring uh weight off the rest of the players. It like it takes the burden off them and that they don't take responsibility for, oh wait, I've got to, you know, step up with a goal here because Haaland's not fit and firing today. Uh and uh, that's definitely what happened against uh, Everton for me. Yeah, I think Pep's like evolved this side a lot with Haaland. Um and I understand that like, you have to change up a team. You can't be static in football like things move on and like the vertical style that they played in 1718, like back to front so quickly, like 
it can't always work. And that was one thing that was massive for Pep's early iteration of his side. Like it was Sterling and Sane getting in behind and crossing to the other one to score at the back post. Like you saw that so many times, which is why Sterling got what 18 Premier League goals in that, in that one season and made his name for those kind of um, tapping goals um, that was worked under by Pep and Arteta when Arteta was there. Um, and you just don't really see that with Grealish and Morris. Like you don't see them attacking the back post and obviously the way they've attacked has changed, but I think you do miss that dynamism out wide. Like, Mahrez at Leicester was a player who did go and beat people 1v1. And I think now at City, you don't quite see that as much. Like, he's still got that immense close control. Like, his first touch is he's probably the best in, like, world football when, you know, switches from the other side come towards him. Like, he is unbelievable. That Like, you saw it against Robertson um, in the Carabao Cup the other week. But there's still, like, an issue with going in behind um, with, with your wingers. Like, the 1v1 threat just doesn't seem there with them. Um, I've seen people online suggesting that City should go in for Kraratskhelia and I think it makes sense like a winger who will go and beat his man but I think anyone who will, a winger who uh, just a 1v1 winger like Mudrich like you've seen that Arsenal have been heavy linked and he clearly wants to move to Arsenal and it's sort of just a matter of time now before Arsenal agree a deal with Shatter it seems like and he has sort of made his name for those transition moves but against set defensive for Shakhtar in the Ukrainian league like he's still very effective and that's maybe a move that City could do. Like, it doesn't seem like it's going to be too expensive. Like, maybe that's a move City could go and do. Crowd scale. I just think that there's that's an area where City do need to improve right now because, or just play Foden more. I know Foden isn't the most in behind winger ever, but he'll at least make more runs there than Grealish will. And I think that it's strange that Foden's had a really good season so far this year. I think he's probably been their best winger by far, but Grealish has just got the nod um, since the World Cup. And that's just an interesting from Pep, I think. But classic Pep once again. I I also think you can. It doesn't have to be a one v one winger, so to speak. It, it can just be a winger who just stretches teams. So someone like Musa Diaby from Leverkusen, just a, mm. a, a a guy who will be a willing runner out wide. Because what what we also lost with you know Sterling and Sane leaving sit uh, leaving City is those uh, De Bruyne slide passes out wide. You, you, you know the ones where... I remember, yeah, I remember. Uh, the Tassana, I remember one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, against Stoke uh, yes, and against Burnley. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you lose that because Grealish and Mahrez do not want to do that. or, or They don't have the legs to do that, especially Mahrez at his age now. Um, I, like, so, yeah, Someone like Musa Diaby, just perhaps not you know, got the best on-the-ball quality, but he is a willing runner and he will, you know, stretch defences. Yeah, I think there's clearly something that City need to do because Arsenal were sort of running over, obviously 1-4-2 against Brighton. But we've spoken enough about Arsenal in this podcast. So I think we'll move on to sort of the Wout phase show at Anfield. Obviously, Liverpool beat Leicester 2-1 thanks to a brace from Wout Face, Leicester defender, who has obviously been pretty decent this season so far. Obviously, there were a lot of calls for him to feature a lot more heavily than he did at the World Cup for Belgium due to sort of the ageing nature of their centre-back partnership of, of Vertonghen and Alderweireld, but didn't really get the chance under Martinez. And <laughs> he's not perhaps made the the best start to life back in the Premier League. Two own goals at Anfield. The first one was sort of an unbelievable finish. It reminded me of um, that company one that I did. I think it was at Craven Cottage against Fulham. Um, it was yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. and then the second one, Nunes dinks it over, Danny Ward comes back off the post, Fate face seems like he has a lot of time to react, but then just manages to kick it into the roof of the net, and this has absolutely saved Liverpool, because they didn't look too threatening against Leicester. Uh, yeah, no, definitely not. Uh, I mean, the goal that they concede is just... Oh, the, the way they're carved open at Anfield is just awful. Like A, a long ball... One little knockdown, and then Jesus Hill just has, you know, the entire cup just run into and score. It was <laughs> amazing to watch, actually, um, and sort sort of you know sums up Liverpool's problems at the moment because their defence we saw it yesterday against Brentford just that they, they, they were not at the races whatsoever. I mean, obviously, you know, Van Dijk got subbed off potentially because of an injury or potentially just to save face. Who knows? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, they were bailed out massively, and, and just the, the second goal. I, I can excuse the the first own goal from Faze, but the second one, it just doesn't quite compute in my head how he's not thinking about because he he can't block 
the like you can't stop the shot from Nunes. The only thing you can do is potentially hope it comes off the post and be ready to clear it. But he's it, just not on his toes whatsoever for that for that you know th- for the post rebound to happen. I and mean, you know he finishes it half edge style, doesn't it? Yeah, he is. So to be fair to him, it's two cracking finishes. Like the first one, like just watching it, it's just like that has gone so high. Like I don't understand how that's gone in, but like yeah, like you say, it was. It's one of those unfortunate ones where you're like yeah, you can you can kind of like it's like defenders have those moments where you sort of swing at it and it can just go anywhere. And he's obviously got unfortunate; it's gone in the goal. But the second one is just yeah, like you Nunes has showed as well that like he misses these chances. Like you should probably expect that he's gonna miss, and it just doesn't. Yeah, the anticipation the anticipation isn't there. He's just really flat-footed, doesn't move his feet in time, and then it comes to him, and yeah, it just volleys it into the roof of the net. And I think yeah, that point you made about the Leicester goal is really interesting because actually watching that back, Liverpool had the same structure from that that they did for that goal a couple of times in the game, and it really really confused me. They had Joel Matip marking Harvey Barnes on Leicester's left wing. Trent was like pushed up on Luke Thomas. Um, and sort of Van Dyke for the goal was drawn over by Dakar. Um, and yeah, and there's just a massive space between Van Dyke and Robertson because the two centre-halves were basically playing like a right-back and a centre-half. There was no one where Van Dyke should have been because Matt he'd sort of come over to the side of Matip. There's just a massive goal for Jusby Hall just to run through. And obviously it's just a bizarre goal to watch, but it was just a strange tactical choice from Klopp because it clearly wasn't a one-off because I saw it happen a number of times. Um, especially in that first half. And they got away with it the other times, like Matip most of the time won his header against Barnes when it came over on that side. But that one time it didn't work and, and they got lucky. They got bailed out by face scoring two own goals. And there's something that can't really happen for Liverpool going forward because like we saw against Benfield, we'll mention it in our next podcast, um, talking about that match today. But yeah, the defence looked ropey again. So, and like the attack didn't create anything either. Like the attack didn't create too much. And we spoke before about Nunes against Villa missing so many chances. Like he didn't get as many chances in the last couple of games. And obviously still creating a few um, and still missing them. But you need to get Darwin Nunes chances because he's shown he's not been particularly clinical. So you've got to get him chances to at least score one in 10 or something. Um, but they're just not creating as much as they need to. And another team is not creating as much as they need to was Chelsea against Nottingham Forest had 73% possession and just no cutting edge um, from such a sort of high of that. I know it was only Bournemouth, but Graham Potter looked like he'd figured some stuff out in terms of passes to play, just went out the window um, at City ground and the, the crowd was certainly up for it. Like they created a really hostile environment for Chelsea. Obviously the referee, the crowd believed the referee was given a lot in Chelsea's favour, which sort of rolled up the crowd and sort of, probably helped Forrest because the, the fans were so angry at the referee singing chants like you're not fit to referee and stuff like that. Obviously the referee can only do his, his job as well as he can, but the fans felt like he was going against their side and that sort of riled up the players like Ryan Yates um, potentially did enough to get two yellow cards throughout the, the game, but he was sort of showing some fight and for a player who's not maybe like on the ball, particularly impressive. Like he showed some grit and termination in that midfield and that sparked Forrest into life. And and Chelsea just weren't able to deal with like the intensity that Forrest played at times. Like Tywo Awaniwi was just such a menace throughout the game and, and Koulibaly just looked completely out of his depth. Obviously has played mostly at left centre-back during his time at Napoli. Potter clearly views him more as a right centre-back because he's used him there with Thiago Silva on the left. Uh, maybe that's due to Thiago Silva wanting to play on that side, but maybe it's due to Koulibaly as well. And it is bizarre that Koulibaly is now two really poor games and Trevor Chalobah, who was probably the best defender during Potter's first you know, stint in charge before the World Cup break. And it was like a regular under Potter has just sort of been cast aside recently with Koulibaly favoured. And I would be very surprised if Koulibaly keeps his place against Man City because he was awful in this game. Like, Owenewi just completely tore him, tore him to shreds. Like, Koulibaly kept diving in, thinking he was going to win it. And he couldn't. And it looks like he might have lost some of that athleticism that saw him sort of succeed so much at Napoli. Yeah, no, what, what I thought was, he, he, I think his legs are at the stage where he just doesn't want that fight down the line. He doesn't want to really stretch his legs. So he just thinks, ah, I'll, I'll try and you know, try and nick the ball early on just so Awanini doesn't get you know up, up to full stride and he was just getting cooked every time. It was pretty hard to watch at times. Um, but I, I thought in the first half, Chelsea were... Okay, but mainly because I thought Forrest were just sitting in in that sort of mid to deep block, sort of trying to just shepherd 
uh, you know, Chelsea's possession of the ball and, and hit on the counter. We saw in the, uh, the first half a few times Brennan Johnson getting behind, which is the game plan. But I think maybe because of, due to the refereeing performance, you know, getting a bit riled up because I, I thought the ref in the first half was pretty woeful. Um, I think, you know, Cooper in the second half realised we can actually just take the game to Chelsea. Here. We can really press up high and they won't be able to live with it. Um, and I thought in the second half they probably deserved to score, you know, at least at least another goal to get the win. Yeah, for sure. Like Gibbs White smacked the bar with that brilliant effort. Um, Kepp was just absolutely nowhere near it. And Chelsea were probably fortunate to get away with a point in the end because Forest were the more threatening side. Like they just 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 because they didn't have much possession doesn't mean they weren't more threatening. They certainly probably carved out the better chances. Obviously, Brennan Johnson had a a couple of chances, like you mentioned, um, through on goal, sort of played in behind and was, you know, didn't quite have the, the finishing touch. Um, quite poor, I think, a couple of times. He probably should have done a little bit better. Um, but Chelsea have got things to work on because this is a game that they probably needed to win with, like, obviously Liverpool, obviously before the Brent game, Liverpool beat Leicester. Um, United looking pretty strong under Ten Hag. Um, Newcastle looking very good under Eddie Howe and are looking like they will just be fighting for top four throughout the season. They're not really going to drop off. Um this is a performance at Chelsea, like a game Chelsea just needed to win, like against relegation threatened Forest. Like you have to just go there, grind out a win, no matter how you do it. Um, and they weren't able to. Obviously, Liverpool lost at City Ground as well over the season, so Forest have have clearly got something going at home, and that's potentially a thing that might be able to keep them stay up. Um, in terms of that home advantage they have, but yeah, Chelsea will will rue this one as as a missed opportunity because. They probably needed to win this game if they want to get top four. I think it's still still got chances for that to happen. But you know, facing City on Thursday night, like you imagine, they aren't able to get anything out of that game. And Diego Fernandez signing, if it does happen, which it looks like it is, can't come soon enough. Right then, we'll move on to League on then, and we'll start with a brilliant result: uh, Lons beating PSG three one. Um, yeah, just brilliant. Like PSG, obviously top of league gun, but Lons have closed that gap now to four points with a brilliant win. Um, Frank Hayes done it again. He has indeed. Do you remember? I think it was the episode before the World Cup break. I said this is a huge game because PSG are going to have you know. Yeah, you did actually. Players, players, players coming back from the World Cup, not a hundred percent, and they've got a big opportunity to close the gap. If they didn't draw the last game. We could be talking about a serious title race now because that the, the gap would have been what one point maybe. Um, uh, yeah, obviously, yeah, and two, yeah, yeah, two points it would have been. Yeah, uh, so obviously you know the gap is you know four points now, but in, in terms of mo- momentum, you know a, a win like this is huge for League One in, in terms of you know potentially having a title race. And I thought Lond, you know, thoroughly deserved the victory. Yeah, I think Frank Hayes is quickly turning into one of like the best managers in world football. Done an amazing job on a shoestring budget at Lons, like having a keeper like Bree Samba obviously has been superb this year. That like, the defensive record has been something that Lons have prided themselves on because that has been their sort of shine. Obviously, someone like Lois Appender um through the middle has been spectacular for them, um, getting a lot of goals, but they've only conceded eleven this season, which is two less than PSG, the best Italy gun. Uh, PSG considered 13. Like they're not scored as many. PSG got 46. Lons just on 29, which is less than Marseille, less than Rennes, less than Monaco, less than Lille. Um, even less than Troyes, who were in 13th place. Um, actually the same number as Troyes, I should say. Um, but like that defensive record has just been so crucial. Um and I think, yeah, even though they did draw their last game, there is still a title race here, like PSG. I mean, who knows when Messi returns? Um and I think they did lack sort of that threat out wide. Like it was it was Mbappe and Ekatike up front. Uh, Neymar obviously suspended after getting sent off in the previous game. Messi still not back from the World Cup. And and Gaultier was sort of limited in who he could play and went for a really narrow formation with playing four central midfielders. Um, it was Danilo Pereira, Verratti, Carlos Soler and Fabian Ruiz. And it just felt a bit samey for PSG. Like it was just a lot of players who just neat in possession, not particularly like quick off the mark. Like they're pretty slow central midfielders. Like you can get through them. And with someone like Seco Fafana for Lons, who is so dynamic, like it's an area that they were able to exploit Lons. And I think PSG will be really concerned about the form of Lons because 
Lonzo's only league loss was back on the 9th of October, 1-0 loss to Lille. Still a close loss. It wasn't like they got absolutely battered. And that's, you know, one loss for Lons, um going into the new year. Like, that's a brilliant record. And they've shown in the last couple of years that they are a really progressive club, like managing to sort of get near the top of league and on a shoestring budget and compete with the big boys. And this year they're competing for the title, not just for European places. Yeah. And also the smart, you know, business that they do. I mean, even though he hasn't quite hit you know, the heights that we thought he would. Um, you know, Alexis Glomerice getting a goal in this game, huge for him, I think. Obviously, the, the back heel from Appenda is genius. And then the finish, you know, just smartly just slots it home quickly. Like the, the speed at which he just thinks, right, one touch, bang, bottom left. Really good finish. And when, when he first, when, when he was at Lorient in League League 2, uh, I thought that there was a lot of hype around Claude Maurice uh, and then he went to Nice and it didn't quite work out for him. But th- this could be sort of a, a revitalisation of, of that talent that we saw at Lorient in League in League 2. Because he's a player, you know, back in the day I was all over saying that this could be, <laughs> you know, a, a, real, a real talent for the future. Uh but yeah, really nice to see him bag on the big stage. Yeah, it's just a squad full of, like, it's not full of superstars at all. Like in direct comparison to PSG, um, and it's just, it's just a team. That's what it is, Lawrence. Um, and they work really nicely as a unit. Obviously, they're now four points clear of Marseille, who Marseille have started very well um, since the restart of of Ligue 1. Um, obviously, only two teams automatically qualify for the Champions League, so that will probably be the first objective for Lons. Obviously, they're four points clear of Marseille, like I said. Um, but even getting like European football would be massive for them. Even if it is only Conference League, they're obviously seven points clear of Monaco, who are in that fifth place, which is the Euro- Europa Conference League spot in Ligue 1. Um, but yeah, the title charge is well and truly underway. And if PSG continue to be sort of reliant on Mbappe, like even that last game, like we mentioned against Strasbourg um, in the last podcast, like it took a last minute Mbappe penalty for them to win it. Like they're relying still on Mbappe. It's something we saw during the Pochettino era where they were playing so poorly and it would take a, a last minute winner from Mbappe to get them over the line and, and won them sort of so many games. Um, and it sort of seemed like they'd sort of got past that stage. Um, and maybe it will be once again, sort of a t- more of a team effort when Messi and Neymar return. Um, obviously, Messi's had an incredible start to the season and will be buoyed from from winning the World Cup. But yeah, worrying for PSG because, yeah, they've not looked good recently. That is for sure. Right then, on to Leon then, mate. Um, and just a sort of few days after we were sort of praising Laurent Blanc for sort of finally using Ryan Cherky in the number 10 position, finally starting Tete, Finally, using that four-two-three-one that we want him, winning four-two against Brest. It's one step forward, two steps back, like it's been for a long, long time for Leon. After that brilliant win, they lost one-nil to Clermont Foot. Thanks to an eighty-seventh-minute penalty from Mohamed Cham. Um, what happened for Leon? Like it just looks like they are a team who were just succumb to mediocrity and sort of mid-table league gun. Like they've got so much potential, but they're not quite realizing it. Yeah, uh, I think we look pretty silly after hyping up the four two three one now, don't we? Uh, yeah, no, it's just it's it's painful, isn't it? I think that this has just been Leon for the last three seasons. To be honest, I think since since that Champions League semi final in, in you know lockdown footing, it's just been painful stuff. I mean, how many seasons is it without European football? Uh, two two in a row now, and potentially going to be three. Likely to be three, yeah, they're eighth now and they are, what, nine points behind Monaco who are in fifth in the Europa Conference League spot. Like, that's quite a big gap to make up. Yeah, when when you're as inconsistent as you are, you've just got no chance of, you know, building any sort of momentum. Uh, and, and that was summed up perfectly in, in these last two games. Yeah, they're obviously... It's just it's strange because Leon do have such a good squad and it looks like they're on the edge of being something good, but it's seven wins, seven losses now this season, the three draws in there as well. There is obviously, as I mentioned, nine points behind Monaco. That's the same gap between them and 16th place Ajaccio. That's nine points as well. And Ajaccio only one place ahead of the relegation spots in Ligue 1 because Ligue 1 obviously trying to reduce the size of their league to 18. Um, and yeah, like that just sums things up. Like they are just a team who look pretty mid-table, even though they've got players who are, like you look at their team on paper in comparison to Lons, who we mentioned just then, like Leon have probably got a better squad on paper, um, but it's just not making it work 
Um, and it is strange to see. And, and yeah, like we said, obviously we hyped them up last podcast and come crashing back down. But that seems like it has been the story for Leon, sort of ups and downs over the last couple of years. You saw it with Petter Bosch, you're seeing it now with Blanc. And I'm not quite sure what the fix is because it does just seem like they're a club who are maybe bound to this because you imagine the likes of like Gusto, is he going to be there for too much longer? I'm not sure. Is Lukeba going to be nabbed by a bigger team in France or a team from across the continent? Um, is Kakare going to finally leave and sort of realise the potential that he has? I'm I'm just not sure how much better Lyon can get, um, especially well, with how... Go on then. Think about this. They've just signed Dayan Lovren. To turn it all around. <laughs> I was expecting you to come up with some really intellectual point then to prove me wrong, but maybe that was it. Lovren, Lovren's yeah. coming in. That yeah, is such yeah, a just, weird I'm signing. Just, yeah, just thinking about Jerome Bow saying Dan Lovren signed about partnership in 2023, and it's it's making me a little bit scared to be honest. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good scared or a bad scared, but I'd, I'd love to see it consistently. Just to I'd... just to laugh at it, to be honest. It wouldn't. The thing is, it wouldn't surprise me too much if Blanc wanted some like experience in that defense. But surely Lukeba gets preferred to both of them, or at least one of them, and starts as sort of the fulcrum of that backline as is the main player in there. But yeah, Lovren signing from Zenit, I think it is. It's just that's just a Leon signing, just a weird signing, isn't it? Like you've seen it with Boateng arriving. Like what they're doing? Yeah, no, I, I do also think they need. They need a, a, a yeah a, a proper destroyer sort of six to partner Kakare if they are going to persist with this four two three one. Do you think um, Thiago Mendes could be that guy or or not? No, no, I've I've seen enough of him to be honest. Really? Yeah, I'm I'm done with that guy honestly. Um, who that is, I'm not entirely sure to be honest. Um, who's that? Uh, who's that midfielder from uh, Gladbach right now? He's absolutely tearing it up. Manu Kone? Uh, no, uh, Quad... Is that... Is that yeah, Quadi it? Kone, yeah. It's, it's yeah a, Quad... I, I'm never not sure whether it's Manu or Quadu. I think yeah. there's two different names, but yeah. Could they, could they go and sign him? Or, or is, is he... That's is a he... sideways move, I think. I don't think that yeah. they can go and get Kone. Like, he's been linked with, like, Chelsea. I think that he's one of those ones like Kakari who is, like, on the verge of, like, a big move and it wouldn't make a sideways move like that, I don't think. But it's yeah. a good good idea. Like I think that would be that would be such an aesthetically pleasing midfield as well because he's really good on the ball. Yeah, yeah. No, but, I was watching some stuff of him the other day, just thinking that is and Dombele regenerated, isn't it? So <laughs> smooth, it's beautiful. I think I'll be yeah. talking into a lot more Gladbach games when the Bundesliga restarts. Eh? <laughs> yeah, he's a good one. Mate, potentially they could go and get Kefran Turam um, from Nice, Leon. That's maybe maybe yeah. the kind of signing that they could go and get, but. I'm not quite sure what the actual answer is, and and maybe they do need to to dip into the January market if they want to try and get European football. But I think that might even be one step too far for this squad right now because it does just look pretty shaky, and and that's strange considering the, the talent they do have. Um, we'll get on to, to the final talking point from Lee Gunn then. Um, it's a little bit of a sad one, Martin Terrier. Um, it's been announced today that he will miss the rest of the season. Um, due to an ACL injury. Um, he scored the opener and Renz's 2-1 win over Nice last night, but went off and has been ruled out for the rest of the season with an ACL injury. It's a massive shame because after an amazing season last year with 17 goals, start this season in similar fashion, nine goals, four assists in 16 league earned matches. Um, a massive shame for Terry because he's, because he's been a, a massive part of Renz's side and you know, they're fourth right now, um, looking really good. Um, and he was looking like a player who could be picked up by a really big club in the summer because he's been so excellent for the last couple of years. But yeah, ruled out for injury. And it's really, really cruel to see. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, obviously, you know, since he came to Rennes, he's been absolutely yeah, on fire. Something we never really saw at Leon. He'd have moments where you'd see like that that sort of explosive winger in behind who, who knows how to make the right runs at the right time and, and finish off with, with composure. But uh, Rennie definitely did explode. Um, but what this does present is opportunities for Jeremy Doku yes. and Camaldine Sulimana, which could be very nice because they're, they're players who the last two years we've seen moments, obviously, um, and especially Doku, yeah, you know, at the Euros, we thought that this is it. He's gonna, you know, 
become the next you know star of, of league on but it's not quite happened due to injury or due to you know the lack of you know opportunities um but with this terrier acl injury that there are now opportunities for, for these two to to really shine yeah, it is. It's weird because last season, Suleimane, when he started off at Wren, obviously was linked with like United after leaving Norway, I think it was, um, was looking really, really promising. And, and United fans are thinking, oh, how have we missed out on this guy? Um, so like a scenario we've seen a lot of times in recent years. And, and Doku obviously was linked with Liverpool, um, was linked with being that Mane replacement at Liverpool. But due to injuries to them both, but also due to Bourgeard on the right and Terrier on the left sort of, Genesio going for this 4-4-2 with Callum Wendo and Guiri up front. Like, there's just not really been opportunities for them, which is really strange because they are two such talented wide men who both have such unbelievable 1v1 ability. Like They're both 20. Suleimane's had two starts in the league this season. Doku's had one. Suleimane's on, currently on 271 minutes of action. Doku's 264. Like They've just not really been given the opportunity to play that much like Leslie, I know they're different positions, but Leslie Ukachukwe and Desiree Due, 17 and 18. Um, Ukachukwe is 18, Due is 17. They've both had almost double the amount of minutes that Suleiman and Doku have had. Um, and so it, it's clear to see that youngsters being trusted isn't the problem, but it is just like competition for places at Wren, um, along with their injuries. But yeah, like you say, there's potentially opportunity for one of them to step up and be given a starting role. Like I think they were, they were both on the bench um, against Nice, so they're clearly fit now, um, and maybe it's time for one of them to to become a regular starter. If you are, if you were the manager, if you were Ren's manager, if you were Genesio, who are you picking? Like out of those two to start on the left flank? Uh, I'd say on the left flank, I'd probably favour Sulemana. Uh, I, th- I think Doku. Um, I think for me, his be- his best position is probably right wing. To be honest, the, the way. Really, I I I don't know. I I really liked him when he played against um Di Lorenzo for uh, the Euros. Uh, on that, yeah, that yeah. was one moment I really liked. Uh, but I I, th- I think if you're gonna say the both of them play, I, I think I'd favour Doku being on the right because I think he's just more comfortable there. He's more yeah. comfortable shifting it onto his right. He's one of the most explosive shifters of the ball over those first two steps and getting balls into the box. Whereas Sulemana. I don't think has that on that right hand side as opposed to as it, uh, you know cutting in on the on on the left hand side. I think he's just way more comfortable in that position. Yeah, and also that is where he started his running career when he was being favourite to start last season on the left, and he was so impressive. So, yeah, good point. And I I think if if there was one of them, it, it maybe is more likely to be Suleiman, especially with Doku's dodgy injury record. He maybe just isn't going to be fit enough, which is a real shame because I think he's such a talented player, and if he can get a run on the side. And he can get a run in any side. I think that he can be such a useful asset. And and maybe this provides one of them the chance to sort of launch themselves to become regulars at Wren because there's a chance that even with this injury, like Terry might get a move in the summer. Obviously, it makes it a lot more unlikely, but there's still a chance. And, and maybe one of them has the potential to be the starter next season if they can impress um, in the rest of the season because they've got a chance that Wren are going to be competing for European football and they're going to need someone to step up because... Like I mentioned, that's sort of nine goals, four assists. That's thirteen goal contributions in just sixteen league games with Terrier. Like that's a lot of production that they're going to lose. So they're going to need Sulemano and Doku to step up because although they're both very talented, they've not neither of them have really shown much clinical sort of final third decision making in their careers so far. Obviously, really young, so got time to learn that and develop that. But they're going to have to step up and produce for Ren because they're going to need it if they're going to sort of mount this charge in European football because. They're fourth right now, but they're fourth with Terrier being so productive. So if they lose that, there's a chance that Monaco, Lorient, Lille, Lille can sort of catch them. Um, so they're going to need someone, either Suleiman or Doku, to step up if they are so, to finish in one of the European places. And then we'll finally get on to La Liga talking points. In our last podcast, you mentioned how it's a little bit difficult sort of figuring out when to record um, this episode and last episode. Um, so last episode, we did mention the first three games of La Liga, the games that had happened when we were recording. The rest of that match day has now concluded. So we'll get on to talking about that now. And we'll start with a topic you're going to be very fond of discussing, discussing Jamie. So I'll let you take the floor. Kareem Benzema, he's back. He is back. And 
it's just beautiful to see, isn't it? Because I think ever since that um, that Celtic game in the Champions League, he has just he's been you know obviously struggling with injuries, sort of trying to return to the to the fold, and obviously you know suffering that big setback before the World Cup. But now he's back, you know, he's fit and he's firing, and, he, and he's bagged a brace on his return. Beautiful to see. Yeah, massive for Real Madrid because they were struggling against Raul Valladolid. Obviously, 2-0 win thanks to Benzema Brace. An 83rd minute penalty, which was pretty pretty heavily discussed by the Valladolid players. Obviously, given for a handball. Even, I think, Sergio Leon was sent off for protesting to the referee about the award of the penalty. But Benzema stuck it away and then sort of scored in the 89th minute to seal the victory. Unconvincing start to life back in La Liga for Real Madrid, but they got the job done. Obviously, another player that we're massive fans on, you especially, Eduardo Camavinga, played a massive role in Benzema's second. Um, a give and go on the halfway line, he was sort of out on the left flank, managed to burst past the Valladolid defender, then cut it back for Benzema to finish. And really nice to see him getting some, you know, an assist in this game. And one thing I do want to point out though is that. Valladolid's right back, Ivan Fresnado, has got a lot of sort of press for his performance, me included, was very impressed against Vinicius Junior. Held his own, he's just 18, but made eight tackles, two interceptions in the game, has been linked with Newcastle and Arsenal, um, not just off the back of this performance, um, he's been there for, for a couple of weeks, a couple of months now, but this has certainly helped his case because he was excellent this game, looks really comfortable in possession as well as having that defensive um, solidity as well, but you know, remains to be seen if he makes a move in January or in the summer or remains at Valladolid for a little bit longer. But just 18 to sort of lock down Vinicius Junior like he did was massive. Um, just on Benzema again, he did miss a massive chance about six, seven, 16, 17 minutes in, about six yards out, the ball fell to him on his left foot. And there's a couple of defenders in the way, but the keeper wasn't in the goal and he, he blasted it over. So still getting back back to match fitness. But mm, yeah. um, Barcelona... You know, Drew, we'll mention them in a minute, Drew against Espanyol. So Real Madrid are now back level on points with Barcelona. Um, who are your favourites going into sort of the La Liga run that right, the run into the end of the season? Uh, I still just trust Real Madrid way more than I do Barcelona. Uh, I don't think that's really outrageous to say. Uh, I think that they have got you know, the proven sort of you know winning mentality in their squad. And I think Barcelona... To me, anyway, they just feel like they can just implode at any point with that squad and, and how sort of erratic some of their players can be. And we obviously saw that in 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 that uh, one-all draw to Espanyol. Um, but yeah, no, obviously, it's great that Benzema's back and all. Um, but I'd, I, I would like to see Camavinga, you know, get a, a run in the, in, in the side now because obviously, you know, Danny Ceballos is... It, He's he's a good squad player, but is he should he be starting these sort of games week in week out? Probably not. Camavinga, way more proven quality at at, at this level. Um, so get him in there, please, Carlo. Yeah, and obviously Valverde was in a midfield three, um, which is something we haven't seen yes. for a long time at Real Madrid. Like we've obviously mentioned, how you know I, I in particular have sort of mentioned how I've a bit more of a fan of him um, from the right wing um, at the moment. But he was trusted in that midfield three with Kroos and Ceballos. Um, obviously, Chuameni was on the bench and came on. Modric also on the bench and came on after they, you know, both went deep in the World Cup. Um, Camavinga as well. Um, so those three all came off the bench, and nice to see Camavinga pop up with a goal contribution. Um, obviously, still question marks over how often he's going to feature. Like he was playing at left back for France in the World Cup final. Was playing, came on at left wing uh, in this game. So. It is strange to see that people aren't quite trusting him in central midfield, um, which I don't really understand because it's clearly his best position. Um, but, you know, this is kind of the things that happen. I suppose you have to be shifted out of position, obviously. Started when he came on, was playing central midfield and, and moved out to the left wing when Modric came on for Vinicius Junior, um, which is when he got that goal contribution, I think. Um, so, yeah, nice to see, I think, Kamavinga getting at least some minutes, that's for sure. Yeah, um, what are you thinking of the Tony Crowe's contract situation at the moment? I think that Crowe's is still like just a massive player for Real Madrid. Like, I'm not mm. quite sure if they can afford to let him like leave. Like, I I understand Camavinga and, and Valverde are both sort of there and in the fold, um, and having a mid. But with Modric, sort of, I know he's still spectacular, but he's what 37 now. 
But I think you still need Kroos, who's a lot in his you know early thirties. He can still contribute. Like you saw, he's still making like massive impacts in games for them. You saw that assist for Rudiger in the Champions League, um, where Rudiger absolutely clattered by the keeper. Can't remember who it was against, um, but that was an uh, unbelievable shout cross. Out. Yeah, shout that, out was, it was, yeah. that was a great cross from Kroos. Um, I just don't think Real Madrid can afford to lose him, but I think he's yeah. such a good player still. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't understand what, why there is this sort of trepidation over, you know, contract talks, to be honest, for, for both parties. You've still got a, a top-class midfielder player there and, you know, Tony Crowe's, why would you want to leave Madrid now? But I, I guess we could sort of say the same thing about Casemiro, uh, you know, six months ago. Perhaps it is that need for a new challenge that Tony Crowe's is wanting. I don't know where I could see Crowe's going, though. I think Casemiro plugs holes at most clubs in world if not every club in world football I'm not quite sure where like like if you look at teams that need central midfielders like Chelsea and Liverpool both need central midfielders um, I don't think Kroos would suit a Klopp style midfield in central midfielder wouldn't be what Liverpool need um, I think they need a lot more legs in, in that midfield that's why someone like Bellingham's been linked so much Chelsea have clearly pursued Endo Fernandes like I don't know where he'd go I think like just staying at Real Madrid is just the most logical decision to make mm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Um, well, enough talk about Tony Cruz, and we'll get on to Barcelona. You mentioned it a little bit earlier. Um, was there one all draw with Espanyol? They had twenty-one shots, only scored the one goal. Um, Marcus Alonso scored the goal, um, but he was playing at centre back again, um, which is just still completely bizarre to me, and I don't understand how. That is something that's happening um, for Barcelona, one of the biggest clubs in world football. Obviously, still top of La Liga, and Marcos Alonso has featured semi-regularly at centre-back for them recently. Um, clearly shows that Xavi just doesn't trust Eric Garcia, a bit like Luis Enrique did, um, obviously playing Rodri out of position instead of playing Eric Garcia. So it sort of shows how Barcelona and Spain just don't believe in Eric Garcia. Um, so you'd imagine that he's surely got to be thinking about his future at the club because he's not getting minutes over Marcus Alonso at centre back. Um, but the main the main talking point really, Mateo Lajos continuing his his World Cup form in, as a referee. Uh, yeah, I, I've I've just been counting up the cards. Yeah, I think it's somewhere close to seventeen or something like that. 15, 15 16, 17, which is sort of similar numbers. To what he was doing against uh, with with Netherlands against Argentina, so you know respect for him having that sort of consistency. <laughs> um, but one thing I will say is he 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 refereed the Champions League final between Chelsea and City, didn't he? Uh, yes, I think he did. Yeah, and in that game, I thought it was really good. But maybe that was me uh, just you know being entirely on Chelsea's side, wanting Chelsea <laughs> to win. And he gave a load of decisions for Chelsea against City. So maybe that was just my sort of rose-tinted glasses there. But in that game, I thought he just managed the game really well. He was really, you know, like communicated well with the players and the managers. Didn't really you know, get involved too much, I don't, I don't think. But in these last two games that he's refereed, it seems to be the the, the, the Hodge show and not, you know, the football on display. Yeah, it is. It does just seem like anything that is challenged against him is just yeah, yellow card, yellow card, and it does just you get it gets out of control because once you start giving yellow cards uh, early on in the game, it just continues throughout and it can descend into chaos. And you saw that with Alba being sent off, and I just yeah, it's strange. Yes, yes, yes. yeah, the yeah, Espanol had a sending off as well, so it is just a clearly something that. Lahoz, that's him as a referee now. Clearly, uh, he's changed mm. his way since 2021. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah. I'll be amazed if he continues to get big games in La Liga yeah. if he's going to keep making it, you know, yellow card after yellow card. Yeah, did you see the, the 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 penalty that was awarded for Espanyol as well? It is one of the softest penalties I think you'll ever see. It's yeah. Honestly, laughable the, the way that Hosselu goes down for it. <laughs> Literally gets a little tap on the shoulder. Just it, it honestly looks like he's been sniped. Um, <laughs> and Lahoz falls for it, and VAR don't turn it over. It's honestly just incredible how Barcelona, you know, conceded that penalty and ultimately dropped points. Yeah, and Lahoz obviously made another sending off that got overturned by VAR, and so yeah. 
clearly that is Mateo Lahoz provides drama. So if he's if he's refereeing any game, make sure you tune in because you're bound to see a lot of entertainment, that is for sure. Um, and just finally then, um, the final talking point of La Liga and the final talking point of this episode of the Batsko podcast. It's about Sevilla. We mentioned in the last podcast how they had a massive game against Celta Vigo. Um, so a relegation six-pointer with Sevilla in the relegation zone. Celta Vigo, one place above it. Um, a chance for Sevilla to move out the relegation zone to start their season, really. Um, but no, a one-all draw with Celta Vigo. They went 1-0 down. Um, plus, Jose Angel Carmona was sent off in the last few minutes as well. Um, outshot 17-2. to Like, it wasn't like Celta Vigo sort of were scrappy uh, and just sort of scraped their way to a draw. Like, they were sort of the better side than Sevilla. And the series was hooked at half-time for Eric Lamella. Um, and it took a, a header from a corner from Kike Salas for Sir Sevilla to draw. I think that the keeper probably could have saved it as well at his near post. Um, sort of one of those ones where it's just gone behind the line. He sort of pushed it into his side netting and, and could potentially have done a little bit better. But this is worrying for Sevilla. This is not just a few run of games where you lose form and you slip down a couple of positions in the table like you've seen with Chelsea under Graham Potter. This is a big side who are usually in the Champions League in 18th place in La Liga. And like Sam Pauli was so good at Marseille last season. Obviously, Tudor's come in at Marseille and has been really good too. But Sam Pauli was had a great side at Marseille last year, like got them into the Champions League. He took the Sevilla job on the 6th of October, obviously was at Sevilla before. He's won once in his eight league games in charge so far. Like This is really, really worrying for Sevilla. I think we've been saying this all season, haven't we? We've been saying eventually, you know, Sevilla will, you know, climb up the table and, you know, ho- hopefully just, you know, Finish what like eighth or ninth, like they they will steady the ship. But we're getting to the point now that the same sort of way we're getting to the point with Arsenal, where we're saying they are title favourites now. Yeah, where we're finally admitting, oh wait, Sevilla are in real trouble here. This hasn't just been waiting for you know the the average to sort of the, the to sort of progress to the mean, so so to speak. You know that classic phrase. That yeah. this is Sevilla now. They are in an absolute relegation dogfight. And I don't really know what they do to you know, get out of it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous, really. Like, I don't really think I've seen much about it, like Sevilla being in the relegation zone. It just seems to be bubbling away. Every podcast we do, sort of looking at the tables across Europe, looking at the results, and it's like, oh, Sevilla are, are still in the relegation zone next week. They're still there. They're still there. And it now just is. They are. Like, they're in a massive dogfight to survive. And like, I can't imagine a world in which Sevilla get relegated. This is a massive club in Spain. This is a side who just are always up there in La Liga. Like you always expect sort of the big three of Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, and fourth is Sevilla. Like last season, they were sort of pushing quite heavily, um, quite deep into the season, I should say, like for the title. Like they were close there um, and sort of fell off towards the end of the season. They're level on points with Cadiz uh, in 19th. Elche, they're, they're down already. They've not won a game all season. They've had four draws and four points. They've lost 11 games and they're 15. They're, they're, they're down and out. But Sevilla are level on points with Cadiz, who are 19th. Like, this is not a you know a done deal that they'll get out of this. Um, obviously, there's still, you know, Celta Vigo and Espanyol, uh, 17th and 16th, only one point ahead of Sevilla. But Sevilla are in a really poor run of form. And San Paoli might leave. And I don't know how they fix it. I'm sure you don't really have much options how to fix it either, because this is just a, a decent squad who are somehow performing so below what they should be. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. If you get rid of Sam Pauli, who do you bring in? I mean, the options are limited. When you go into a squad that is just so sort of down in the dumps in in terms of morale, how, how do you, what what manager would go in there to try and sort of turn turn the form around? Uh, yeah, no, it is it's 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 an impossible task to be honest. Yeah, you've got like their squad, like you've got Bono in goal, who was one of the best goalkeepers at the World Cup um, for Morocco. Ender Ziri is his international team up front, obviously scored um, that goal against Portugal in the World Cup and was, was praised for his performances there. Got Marcus Acuna, who who won the World Cup with Argentina. Jesus Navas has been one of the best sort of right-back, right-wing-backs in Spain since he moved back to his homeland from Manchester City. Uh, Joan Jordan in midfield, I think, is has been really good um, in La Liga mm. for about three or four years now, one of the most underrated yeah. players in the league. And, they're just not, it's just not happening for them. And I, I just genuinely don't know how to turn it around. Um, and if Sevilla get relegated, then 
that will be an absolutely a massive occasion for Spanish football. And it's looking on the cards, that is for sure. Right then, mate, that is all for this week. Thank you very much um, for joining me. Thank you, everyone who's tuned in listening. Um, have you enjoyed it, mate? Been a good one, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a really good good run of you know podcasts we've been spraying out over this festive period. Uh, and going into the new year now, yeah, I mean, the, the games don't stop. I, I think we've got a little, a little bit of a breather in terms of Premier League football with with the FA Cup on the weekend. Uh, but apart from that, yeah, we've got Syria kicking off tomorrow. Um, finally back, finally get to watch Napoli play football again. which is Napoli-Inter you know, as well, massive yeah. game to start off. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's going to be great to you know, talk into that tomorrow. Yeah, and then I am... Um... Jetting off to Turin on uh, early on Friday morning to watch Juventus Udinese in Saturday. So I'm very much looking forward to that, and I am uh, excited to to delve into all that, um, into that game um, when I'm back on the podcast. So yeah, should be really good. Um, thank you very much for listening to this episode. Please rate us five stars on your chosen podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter if you don't already, and we will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.